We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, if every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. Good morning. You survived uh, the last couple of days, and it's good to have you here. And the wind being done, I don't know about uh, your area where you came from, but we didn't really get any snow, so that's good. It's good to have you here this morning. Those of you in Skagit, thanks for joining us. Those uh, watching in Boca Raton in Florida, good to have you at the Trinity Church of God and online in the live stream. Um, I I, uh, remember, it's weird saying this, but uh, around the turn of the century, that just seems weird to say that. 2000 is what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> around the turn of the century, there was a movie that um, came out. I, I didn't really like it. I thought it was a very depressing movie, actually. And it was kind of just a, yeah, just kind of a bummer movie. So I'm not saying go out and rent it or anything, or, or you know, I guess you don't go out and rent anything anymore. <laughs> but, uh, but there was this movie, and um, while the, the story, I think, uh, was rather forgettable, the movie was rather forgettable, there was some terminology that came out of that movie that made its way into our vernacular and is used uh, even to this day. The movie was called The Perfect Storm. Some of you remember that movie. And in this movie, they used a ter- terminology like a convergence zone of these three storms coming together, which made this perfect storm. And, and again, the movie, forget the movie, that kind of terminology we still use. We talk about perfect storms in business or in economy or in our family or in a marriage or whatever in these different convergence zones. And I don't know about you, but there have been some times in my life where I've had some of these perfect storms where there's this convergence zone. And I'm not talking about little things like, well, okay, the, the, the tire was flat when I went out to the car and the kids didn't get their homework done and the, and the cat coughed up a furball. Not that kind of stuff. All that's taken care of in a matter of a day or so. I'm talking about when there's major things that happen with, with life, with health, with work, with, with kids, with you know, marriages and, and, and all these kind of things. And several years ago, and I'll spare you the details, but I had one of these seasons of, of some major things happening, uh, some major stuff in our family. Uh, there was an interpersonal conflict with a very dear friend and a breakdown there that was tough. There was some stress on our staff, some people leaving our church, uh, as well as just in, in a time for me of, of thinking, you know, what's going on in, in my future, my tenure here. And it was just a lot of stuff from like every front. It just seemed like there was some major issue and that week, um, uh, there was a, a day that I went up to the hospital. There was a man, an gen- elderly gentleman from our church. He was on his, uh, on his final days. And I went up to pray with him and his family. They knew that this was going to be the end. 
And he knew the Lord. He knew where he was going. He's very confident about that. The family was, was sad that they were losing him, but they had confidence in their hope for eternity. So I went up, prayed with the family, prayed with this man, and they said the other doctors give him max about two days to live. And as I was walking out of the hospital back to my car at St. Joe's in the parking lot, there was this thought in my mind of, man, he's the lucky one. And, 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 and it's not like I was suicidal, but if you could have given me the option to trade places with him, would have taken it in a heartbeat. And now, now don't worry about me, I'm okay. But it was just, there was just this like, man, life is just so hard right now, it's not fun, and I'm not sure what the outcome's gonna be, and I don't see how this is gonna work out, and, and what's gonna happen here. And in that middle of that night, you know, when you're wide awake, looking up at the ceiling, praying, and you just wonder, maybe I don't know about you, but I get to this point where I say, God, are you even aware of what's going on in my world right now? And if you are, do you even care? And maybe you get to the point where you start questioning God's existence, are you even there? Those are the perfect storm times of life, and I don't know if you've had them, but they come in all kinds of things with health issues, there's uncertainty maybe, there's fear, anxiety, worry, stress, anger, frustration, all these things. Any of you ever had a perfect storm at all? So you know what I'm talking about, and there's a chance maybe some of you are living in a season of a perfect storm now. Well, I just want to say, I am so glad that you're here, because we're going to talk about not how to avoid perfect storms and how to make sure that there's never a storm in life, but what will see us through perfect storms, maybe the one that you're facing even today, or maybe one that you'll face sometime this year or in the coming months or what have you. Now, we've been in this series called Jesus is a Subject as we're just spending 15 weeks marching through the book of Mark. We will continue that today in Mark chapter 4. I want to give you uh, two or three, maybe four different pieces of information that hopefully will converge as we come to Mark chapter 4. So bear with me uh, on the front end of this. Mark is the the first, most believed, the first gospel that was written, even though it's the second in, in uh, chronolo- or linear order there in the New Testament, it was the first one that was written. And most scholars, while there's some differing opinions of this, believe that it was written somewhere between the years 65 and 70. That will come into play here in a minute. And it was written, it was most likely Peter's firsthand account of what he experienced with Jesus dictated to his secretary, as it were, John Mark. And it was written to the Christ followers, the church in Rome. They were the ones that this was directed to. And as you begin to see all this, um, we've been going through it in four weeks, whatever, we've covered about two and a half chapters. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have to skip over large portions of this. We've got to speed the pace up a little bit. That's why I hope you're reading this on your own, studying it on your own. And today, especially, we're just going to blaze over the majority of chapter three and chapter four and, and only land on one piece of that. I'll give you a little uh, catching up with this. Jesus has started his earthly ministry. There's a meteoric popularity. I mean, people are coming from everywhere. The things he says the way he teaches, the authority that he has, the things that, this new ideas that he brings, the things that he does as he heals, as he does these miracles, his sparring with the religious leaders, and people love him. And there are multitudes, thousands of people that are coming. Everywhere he goes, they're there. Wherever he goes, they follow him. They show up there. And out of these multitudes of people, these thousands of people, Jesus spends a night in prayer, and then he chooses 12 to be with him. We refer to them as his disciples. He chooses 12 out of these thousands, so he's kind of put together his team. And while everything is going incredibly well, there's a couple groups that are not nearly as excited about Jesus and what he's doing. One is the teachers of the law. In fact, the teachers of the law, and this is a part that you'll have to read on your own, they come from Jerusalem, and they quote a line out of Bohemian Rhapsody to Jesus. You were not aware of that. 
But they basically said, Beelzebub has a devil set aside for you. And, and, and they say, we think you're doing this out of the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And he kind of tells them how logically that doesn't make any sense and, and dismisses them. And then his family, like his biological flesh and blood, immediate family, think that he's gone off the deep end. And they come to try to, in essence, save him from himself and take him away from what he's doing. In the midst of all of this that's going on, we come back to this, this essence of his message that he would teach, and we've, we saw this from the very beginning when he said this, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news, come and follow me. So he's talking about this kingdom of God, and in their mind, in their understanding, in their thinking, when they think kingdom, they think the Roman Empire, it's, it's the, the ruling world power and when you have the kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of God in contrast, they have hopes that this kingdom of God, they've longed for this for hundreds of years, this kingdom of God would be a political kingdom. It would be a military kingdom. It would be a national kingdom. Like in the glory days of King David when Israel was the nation of all of the earth. They were hoping that that would happen again. But Jesus does these weird teachings about the kingdom of God, saying the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. What does that mean? How can you conquer all of Rome with a mustard seed? It doesn't make any sense. And they have a misunderstanding of what this kingdom of God would be. But he says, repent, not just turn away from, but turn toward this good news, this you know, euangelion, this, this unbelievable news, and follow me. And many of them do. Of these 12, they left everything, and there were thousands other that were following him. And there may have been this misconception, this idea that if we follow him towards this good news, I mean, anything that's good, maybe life will be easier for us. Maybe we won't have the stresses we've had before. Maybe the worries of life will be gone. And Jesus never says that, and that's not what they experience. Now, sorry for being ADD, but this was written to Christ followers in Rome, probably in the year 65 to 70. Here's why that is significant. On July 18th, 64, the year before, a major event happened in Rome, the Great Fire of Rome. On, on July 18th, it started this fire, and there's a lot of question about who started it and how it happened and all this, but it burns for six days, and there's thoughts, rumors that Nero himself has started these fires because he wants a brand new city. And there's even rumors that as some of the fires die down, he sends thugs out to reignite these fires. But regardless, for six days, Rome is on fire. And according to Tacitus, this, this Roman uh, senator and historian, of the 14 districts of Rome, all but four are affected by this fire. Some of them have some fire damage, some of them are destroyed, some of them are completely obliterated. So the people of Rome have lost all their possessions, they've lost their homes, they've lost their jobs, they've lost family members, they've lost loved ones, they've lost all things. The followers of Christ have lost those things as well. But Nero puts the blame for this fire on the Christians, and so not only have these Christ followers lost everything, now they're being blamed for the fire and it breaks out with this, this persecution in earnest towards Christ followers. So now, not only on a worldly sense have they lost everything, their homes and their families and their jobs and all of their possessions, now they're being blamed for it and now they're being persecuted and there's uncertainty about their future. There's uncertainty about their life. There's a great deal of doubt. And they begin to ask, I think, these questions we ask in the perfect storm. 
God, are you even aware of what's going on in my world here? Do, do you even care? Are you even there? And so when, when these words are written to them, I think especially the story we look at today may have had a really, really deep meaning beyond just a, a, a recount of, of a historic event that had happened 35 years earlier. So we have, we have our lives with our perfect storms. We have the story we're gonna look at, the people who walked with Jesus, and then we have these people in Rome who are dealing with unimaginable difficulties. So let's get into it. Um, Mark chapter four says this. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables. Most likely there outside of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, it's referred to as a lake here, in a boat, most likely one of the fishing boats from Peter, James, John, Andrew, or their, parent, their dads, uh, and he's there and he's teaching. And this is one of the rare occasions, I've told you if you've been us, with us in this series, in the Gospel of Mark, it's often said that Jesus teaches, it, that he does teach, but not what he teaches. This is one of the rare occasions when he actually tells what Jesus teaches. And you can read this on your own in Mark chapter four. He tells four or five, three or four of these parables, these, these short stories that have a meaning to them. Sometimes they understand them, sometimes they don't. He's talking about you know, the, the, the seed, the word of God being like seed and different kinds of soil. He's talking about the kingdom of God being like a farmer with seeds and these kind of things. And some of you would be thinking, boy, it'd be nice if our pastor would just tell us three or four stories and then dismiss us. <laughs> We'd be out of here in 15 minutes. I'm not Jesus. <laughs> and furthermore, I don't think it was a 15-minute sermon <laughs> because it says he taught them many things. Mark just doesn't record all of them. Maybe he went on and on and on. In fact, it kind of implies as he gets in this boat and he starts teaching that he does teach for a while. Because if you go to verse 35, it says, that day when evening came. Hmm? Starts at 10 a.m. for the 10 o'clock service. And goes, and I love this passage. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So there's some details with, with this. You know, it's like, okay, are those significant at all? So here's Jesus. He's been in this boat. He's been teaching for who knows how long, but evening comes, and he decides, hey, let's get away from the crowds. Every, as you've been reading, everywhere he goes, there's a crowd. The multitudes came. They followed him. They couldn't even slow down to eat. I mean, there's so many. He says, let's go across the lake. That way we can get away from the crowds for a while. Because this was a pretty good-sized lake. It's not like Lake Padden or Big Lake where you could just walk around the trail and meet them on the other side. I mean, it's miles. So they said, if we go across the lake, we can get away from the crowds. Then we can have a little bit of a break because they've been pushing it pretty hard. In addition to that, you have these 12 guys that he's just put together. And we've got this picture of the Last Supper, Da Vinci's Last Supper painting, where there are all these guys sitting around having dinner. Some of them are just getting to know each other. Now, granted, some of them are brothers and some of them are cousins, but you've got a tax collector that they hated before this. You've got this zealous guy who's this rebel. You've got this religious Judas guy. You've got these fishermen that are uneducated. You've got this hodgepodge group of 12 guys who, who didn't grow up together altogether. All and so maybe Jesus is saying, hey, we need some team 
building time. We need some male bonding. Let, let's go. Let's, let, we can do the trust fall. That'll be it. We'll, let's all go. We'll have a little bit of a retreat so we can, we can coalesce this team together because they're going to be spending the next three years together. And it says there's other boats with them. And you can say, well, maybe people were following them. Now, my thought is, because it's Jesus and the 12, there's 13 of them. These are smaller fishing boats. They're not all going to fit in one boat. The Coast Guard would not go for that at all. There wouldn't be enough life vests for anyone. So there's multiple boats, maybe, that they're going in, um, kind of this, this you know, armada across the Sea of Galilee with three or four boats, and, and here they are. These guys, some of them, have done this 100 times or more. They grew up on this lake, some of them. They grew up in these boats. These were their boats. They knew this lake. They, they were fishermen. A little bit about this lake or the Sea of Galilee. It's not sea like we think of it. It's a freshwater lake, the Sea of Galilee, but it's, it's big. From north to south, it's about 13 miles long, this lake. And then from east to west, it's about seven or eight miles across. So it's a pretty good-sized lake, freshwater lake. Here's the interesting thing about uh, Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee is that it's 680 feet below sea level. It's inland, but it's down. And it's surrounded by these mountains. On the west side is Mount Arbel, and there was the Valley of the Doves that goes up that way. To the north is the big Mount Hermon, but all the surrounding foothills and the mountains. Over to the, to the east is the Golan Heights. You've heard that, the Heights of Haran, the Bashan, up in that area. And, and there's this, this plateau of, of uh, Trachonitis. And in these areas, the highlands around, there are these canyons, these ravines, these, these uh, valleys, uh, uh, the, uh, the name, the word wadi, W-A-D-I, these wadis, these, these channels that come down. And what was frequently the case is from the higher elevations and from the cooler elevations, the wind would sweep down these valleys, these ravines, these, these canyons, and as they came down, they would be compressed, and then it would all be dumped out onto this lake down below sea level. And that's what happens in this occasion. The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. <laughs> if not for the courage of the... Well, let's read it from the Bible. Verse 4. A furious squall came up. Anyone experienced something like this in the last 24, 48 hours? Yeah. Here, here's an interesting thing I find. The, the Greek word for furious is um, like megatos. Like this is the mega wind. I mean, this is the big one, okay? A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So you have these mega winds that are coming in, and everything is, is, is in turmoil and the waves are breaking over the sides of these boats, and they're trying to bail it out, and it's almost swamped. Now, some of you have heard this story, and we think, okay, we, I know where this is going. I want to pause here because there's a point that we sometimes don't recognize. In this story, here's a little quiz for you, and you can answer it online. Uh, if you're watching at home, uh, just answer it. No one will know why you're talking to yourself. Skagit, join in on this one. They're in the midst of this storm out on, on this lake, out on this sea. Question is this. Whose idea was it to go across the sea in the first place? Jesus. Jesus, good. It's the Sunday school answer. You can't go wrong. Jesus is the subject. I mean, it's in the title, the series. Whose idea was it? Jesus. It was Jesus' idea. So you could almost say Jesus got them into this mess. Because it was something that Jesus said. And here's the point I don't want you to miss because this causes a great deal of confusion for us as followers of Christ sometimes. Sometimes it really messes us up because we follow a false assumption. The storm came in their obedience. 
when they were following Jesus, when they were obedient to Jesus, they encountered a storm. Here's the false supposition that we believe. We believe that if we follow Jesus, if we obey Jesus, then there's always gonna be blessings because this is the life in all of its full, right? This is the good news of the kingdom of God, that there ought to be a one-to-one correlation. I obey Jesus, I get blessings. I follow Jesus, I get the good life. And we can often think that as long as I'm walking with Christ, as long as I'm doing everything I should, as long as I'm following God's way, that somehow I'm guaranteed to always be healthy, to never have any disease, that cancer would never enter in my body or the family, that I would always have strong finances, that I would have the career of my dreams and it would be going up to the right. I would experience marital bliss for many, many decades. My children would be well-adjusted. They'd have great grades, that my house would always be warm, my, my refrigerator full, my bank account up, and my blood pressure down, that it all will be good and my team will always be in the Super Bowl. That this idea that there's this direct correlation, and the problem with that is... When we get hit with a storm, we either assume, I must have done something wrong, I'm being punished for something that I've done, God is somehow disappointed, God's angry, God's getting back at me, and we begin to think that because of disobedience, we have storms, or if we have storms, there must be disobedience. They encountered the storm in their obedience. Jesus himself would say, hey, the, sh- the sun shines on the just and the unjust, and the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. What he was saying is, there are times that good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. John 16, he would say this, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In the world, you might occasionally, no, you will, emphatic here, you will have trouble. This is not a fear tactic to try to get us to obey God to to avoid it. He says, listen, I am stating reality. We live in a fallen world where entropy is at play, which means our bodies get old, diseases do happen, furnaces wear out, fences get blown over in windstorms. These things happen, things break. And we live in a fallen world where evil exists. People make decisions, we make decisions. Innocent people are impacted by the decisions that people make that they shouldn't have made. And here are Jesus' disciples and they're being obedient to Jesus. They're following his instructions. They're following them to the T. And they encounter a storm. So don't be surprised when you get hit with storms in life. Jesus never guaranteed that you wouldn't. He never promised that you wouldn't. All right, so there's this storm, squall, this mega wind comes up. The waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. (laughs) The unmitigated audacity of the Son of God. (laughs) He is asleep in the back of the boat. Now, most of my life, I thought Jesus was probably fake sleeping. You know what that's like when your children are doing something and you're kind (laughs) of... My dad used to do that when I was a little boy and I'd crawl up in bed with him on a Saturday morning or something and and then I would try to get out and he would put his arm over me and wouldn't let me out and he'd pretend like he was sleeping. I I always thought Jesus was just kind of seeing, see how the disciples... (laughs) See how they're going to do this. I don't think that anymore. Because one of the distinctives of the Gospel of Mark is that Mark reveals not only the divinity of Christ, 
but the humanity of Christ. Jesus, while he loves people, he has been giving and ministering and teaching and healing. He has been pouring out, and he loves it. He loves being a part of the God's work and the kingdom of God and the, the things that he's teaching, and he loves all this, but he's a human. And while he loves it, he's tired. He's been teaching all day in this boat. He's tired. And there's the emotional stress of these religious leaders that have come in, and they call them demon-possessed, and he has to set them straight. And then his own mother, and Jesus and Mary had a tight relationship but his own mother thinks he's gone off the deep end and she's trying to take him away. And he's just tired. And he falls asleep. And I think Simon Peter's ticked off about this. I think he's going, great. We're out here rowing and bailing and he's asleep. I think he's probably going, <clears throat> don't worry about us, Jesus. We're gonna be fine. You just keep sleeping. And the beautiful thing about this is that you never, ever see Jesus overreacting or becoming dramatic about anything, ever. I mean, have you ever known someone that's like dramatic? Like everything's the end of the world. Any of you ever raised teenage girls? <laughs> I raised two. And I'm just telling you, I know what overly dramatic end of the world is like. Oh, tears are coming out. Snot is coming out. <laughs> Spit is coming out. There, there's there's this, this decibel level and this octave that only dogs can hear. This shrieking and then this staccato speaking with hyperventilation. <laughs> she said that I... It's like, oh, God, all this stuff is going on. There was a time when our girls were in teenage years and there was something happening. I said, Doreen, let me take care of it. And I went in there to, to deal with this thing, to fix it. <laughs> and the drama and the overreaction and all the things I just talked about, the tears, the snot, the spit, the staccato, the hyperventilating, the crying, the shrieking. And then Doreen comes in. And she says, Bob, quit crying. Go over there. I'll take care of it. I said, I understand this overdramatic stuff. But Jesus never does this. He's never given to drama and overreaction. In fact, I wonder, as Jesus got in the boat that day, if maybe he didn't just quietly quote Psalm 4.8. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. And here's the other thing, that Jesus is asleep maybe because he trusts these guys. You guys know this lake better than I do. These are your boats. You've been out here before. They should have taken great comfort in the fact that Jesus was not disturbed. Let, let me just tell you something. If you're ever in a situation and Jesus is freaked out, you're in trouble. <laughs> They should have taken great comfort that he's fine. They did not. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, interesting. They don't say Lord. At this point, they know him best as a teacher. Though they've seen him do some incredible things, he's a teacher. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? 
Now, there's some significant things about this, not only that they're identifying him as a teacher, not as a Lord, but these guys, some of them anyway, they've been on this lake in the midst of storms. For them to get upset, this was definitely the Megatron storm of all storms. This is a 100-year storm. They've not experienced this before. And they're asking the same questions we do. Hey, are you aware of what's going on around here? Do you even care? Hello, are you even there? They're asking the same questions we ask in the storms. And it says this, he got up. Now again, this is my speculation, but because Jesus is not prone to, to dr drama, chicken little responses, this is what I think happened. Teacher, teacher, don't you care that we're about to drown? <sighs> and then we want him on the bow of the boat like Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> we want him with his arms like Charlton Heston. We want him with the voice of Zeus. But I think he's like, <sighs> he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. None of this, I am the Lord of all creation. It says, uh, hush, relax. Just take it easy. And when he does this, as we've seen, he again pulls the curtain back and he reveals who he is. Psalm 95 says this, the sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Psalm 93 says, the seas have lifted up, O Lord, the seas have lifted up their voice, the seas have lifted up their pounding waves, mightier than the thunders of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Maybe all of a sudden, Psalm 46, 10a has new meaning. Be still and know that I am God. Hush. Relax, learn. And he says it. Quiet, hush, relax, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Yet, to me, the visual of this is this Rottweiler pit bull type dog that is chained up and he's barking and he's lunging and he's snarling and he's growling and he's showing his teeth and he's, he's tugging at this thing and his owner says, sit down. Hush, relax. And it just goes still. And then I think Jesus says, all right, now, because um, now there's no wind so any sails they have aren't gonna work. It's just quiet. And they're not saying a whole lot. The wind is quieted down. The waves are quiet. There's not even lapping on the boat. It's quiet. He says, now, I'm going to ask you guys a couple questions. And Jesus, as we've seen, is always coming around with these questions. Verse 40. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, I think these questions are different than maybe how we take them at first glance. So let's take them one at a time. Why are you so afraid? Well, that's obvious. Jesus, the, the, the mega squall came in and there was the wind and the waves and, and the swamping in the boat. We've never seen anything like this. We're going down. Besides that, we're responsible for killing the Son of God before the crucifixion. It's going to mess up the whole story. This, you, 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 why do you ask this? 
And Jesus probably said, no, 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 wrong question. I didn't ask what you were afraid of. I asked you why. Because it's not the details of the circumstance, but it's the source of your confidence. I, I see the wind. I get that. I understand the waves. I made them. Yeah, the boat. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I get that. But what is the source of your confidence? Is it in your boat? Is it in your ability? Is it because you know this? Like, is it because you can bail? I mean, wh wh why are you so afraid? Because he knows this will not be the only storm that they will encounter in their lives. And then he asked him the other question. Do you still have no faith? And maybe you can think, well, Jesus must have been saying, if the disciples had more faith, they wouldn't have had this storm in their life. And there are some teachers and some preachers who would preach something along that line. And I'm just telling you, that's false teaching. That if you just have enough faith, there will never be sickness in your family. If you just have enough faith, you will never have any financial setbacks. If you just have enough faith, there will never be a divorce. The kids will never go off the rails. If you just have enough faith, that is not what he's saying here. Because what he's talking about is not the amount, but the object of their faith. It's not how much, if you guys would have just believed a little more, there would have never had this storm, and I wouldn't have had to have been woken up from my nap. It's not what he's saying. I mean, does the other time say, if you have faith, just like a mustard seed, I, I, I'm not worried about the amount, but what is it that you have faith in? And maybe Jesus has his own if-then going right now to know that if, if they can learn to trust him, if they can learn to have faith in him, if they can learn to put their confidence not in themselves but in him, then no matter what storm they face in life and no matter the outcome of whatever storm they face in life, they'll be okay. That's what's most important. In verse 41, it says, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. They were scared in the storm. They were terrified at what Jesus did. Your parents ever say, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about? <laughs> Jesus saying, stop being scared or I'll show you how terror's about. They were terrified. Who is they? We call him teacher, but who is this? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of all creation. He is the one with all authority. And he wants them to learn who he is and to trust him and to put their hope in him. Because there will be other storms. And there will be storms that don't get calmed. And there will be storms that can't be escaped. But peace in the midst of our storms, peace is not about the circumstances. And peace is not about the place. And peace is not just about the solution. Peace is a person. Remember, Jesus is a subject. How about that Christmas prophecy from Isaiah? For unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given, and he will, his government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How about that passage out of Philippians 4 that we studied last year? 
Don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, will, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That verse that we already looked at, I've told you these things so that in, in me, he says, you might have peace. In the world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is the subject. Jesus is the peace. Now, that's the end of the story as far as what happened on that day. But it's not the end of the story. Some of you are aware of this. Others are not. That the way Mark lays this, this event out is almost a direct parallel overlay of the Old Testament story found in Jonah chapter one. Jesus and Jonah are both in a boat. On that day, the boat that Jesus and Jonah are in both encounter an enormous storm. Winds, violent winds, seas that are rough. In both stories, Jesus and Jonah fall asleep on the boat. In both stories, the seasoned sailors are freaked out by this storm and they wake up Jonah and Jesus. In both stories, there's a divine intervention that takes care of the storm and it results in their being calm. And in both stories, the sailors are more terrified after the storm has been calmed down than before. It's like the same story. There's one major difference, however. In the story of Jonah, Jonah recognizes that his rebellion and his sin, and he is the reason for the storm. And so he willingly submits himself into the hands of these godless men and says, do what you will with my life, because if I perish, you'll be spared. If I die, you will live. And they do. They throw him into this raging, furious storm, and he's swallowed up by the sea and later the big fish. In Jesus' story, that doesn't happen. Or does it? Because in Matthew, we read these words. Jesus said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and now one greater than Jonah is here. That maybe what Mark is saying is that's the end of what happened that day, but this story that we saw back in Jonah, this story will continue because Jesus will willingly put himself into the, himself into the hands of ungodly men and say, do with my life as you will, because if I perish, you will be spared. If I die, you will live. And Jesus is thrown into the raging fury of the holiness of God's justice against sin. And all of that wrath consumes him and swallows him up. And what Jesus accomplished on the cross and what he vanquished in the resurrection brings us to this point, that Jesus conquered the ultimate storm. 
And it wasn't just the wind and the waves that's now calmed. It's the punishment for sin that's now taken care of. It's the, the terror of death that is done away with. It's the fear of the grave that no longer exists. That he could say to sin, to punishment, to death, to the grave, hush, relax, I've taken care of it. So you ask, is he aware of the storm you're going through? Absolutely. Does he care? More than you can even know. Cast all your burdens on him because he cares for you. Is he even there? He says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Let's do one more if then. If Jesus would willingly allow his life to be taken into the furious rage of the wrath of God against sin for us, and if he would not deny us while he was paying for our sins that we had not yet even committed, then why do we think he would ever abandon us in the storms that we face in this life? To quote old school Amy Grant, based on the word of God, if our God, his son not sparing, came to rescue you, is there any circumstance that he can't see you through? And Jesus says this in John, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Will you face storms in life? Yes, Jesus said it. In fact, he said, these things I've said to you so that in me, you might have peace. In this world, you will have troubles. You will have storms. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Can you imagine how encouraging this was to the people in Rome who were experiencing loss on every front? The unimaginable perfect storm, the convergence of all these things. It's the confidence and the peace and the hope that it brings to us.